So this week, we're going to talk about John 20, the resurrection. <clears throat> and we're going to go through it it's a bit differently. Um, way back in April, I mean, we've been going through John since April. And I used this passage, John 20, on Easter. And so I talked about the first nine verses. And I want to touch now on the interactions Jesus has after those first nine verses. There's three interactions that he has with some people. First, it's Mary Magdalene. Second, it's the disciples. And then thirdly, it's Thomas. And this last interaction, it's truly unique. It's truly the one I hope we can really take home from Thomas's interaction with Jesus. But the other is they add much value to our walk with Christ. And so before we dive in, let's just pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that we can hear your word. And Lord, we thank you that hearing is great, but doing is even better. And so we want to be doers of the word. And so I thank you that we can listen and be transformed. And our hope is that as we hear it, that we go out and we become more like you. And so, Jesus, we pray that these words that I speak will be straight from you. Lord, I thank you that uh, you're speaking to us even as we sit here. So we just pray that your spirit will be amongst us. Amen. All right, if you want to turn to John chapter 20, verses 10 to 18 is where we're going to start. I have it up here on the screen. You can have your Bibles out. Some people have the Bible app on their phone. That's cool. And so you can do whatever you feel. But if you don't have a Bible, we have it up here. Here we go. <clears throat> then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've put him, and I'll get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father, or to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord, and she told them that she is that she told and she told them that he had said these things to her. So let's look at this a little bit more. Mary has gone to the tomb early, early in the morning. So early it was still dark. And she saw the stone was removed. It was removed, it was rolled away. Without hesitance, she just assumes that Christ has been stolen, Christ has been taken. So she runs to Peter and John and gives them the news. Someone has stolen Jesus. His body's taken. We see Peter and John run to the tomb. When they hear it is empty, and then when John entered the tomb, Jesus wasn't there, and his headscarf neat, neatly folded and laid on the bench. And so there are two miracles that happen here. One, John knows Jesus is resurrected. The second miracle, a single man took time to make his bed. Amazing, right? All you guys out there, it's possible. So wives, when you say, why did you make the bed? Jesus did it. They, they have to do it. <laughs> we want to be more like Jesus, right? Make the bed. And so, anyways, John knew what this meant. This man, Jesus, was who he said he was. He is the king. 
that we can believe in him. Now we, we can believe in him. We can believe in him. He's the Messiah. He's the one that scripture talks about. He is the one that, that we've been following. Now it all just makes sense. And so they go running back to the house to tell the other disciples. But poor Mary Magdalene, she's still just left there, just crying. I hear that Shivery is dead. But these guys just left Mary crying and weeping right there. I feel like it might have died with John and Peter at this moment. Anyways, Mary is weeping. But more accurately, she is sobbing and wailing. Not just, the, just the, like, a, like a, just a little, like a cry, a tear runs down her face. Just a sob and a wail. The word wept, used in verse 11, is the same word used to describe the mourners at Lazarus' grave. And so when we read that, we hear that they were wailing and crying. This was the traditional Eastern death well, is what they called. And it came from the depths of a broken heart. And it sounded something like this. <gasps> Just kidding. <laughs> People are going to turn off their hearing aids. He's about to scream. I'm like, no, I'm not going to scream. Anyways, can we imagine Mary's pain? Let's imagine her pain. Jesus had casted seven demons out of her. Mary had sinned much, caught in much sin. But she was forgiven by this man, Jesus. Now he was dead, and on top of that, of that horror of his death, they took the body and they were going to make further sport of him, so she thought. So she's laying there weeping, because he's dead, this man who cast these demons out of me, who forgave me, and now they've taken him. Then she sees these two angels, and then this person comes up to her. She first thinks it's the gardener. And she pleads with him, if you've taken him, if you've taken him, please let me know and I'll, I'll go get him. She is desperate to know where Jesus is. You think she would be upset if the gardener actually took him. If like, you think she'd be like, where did he go? But she so politely asks, sir, please, it's, it's okay. Like if you've, if you've taken him, can, can I have him back? Just the pain that she's experiencing. She's hurting deeply, deeply within. But the supposed gardener says, Mary, and now Mary knows it's Jesus. Look at 17, and this is huge, this is awesome. If you can look back at your script, if your Bibles, if you have it with you, verse 17, it says this, do not hold on to me. Jesus now says this to Mary. Now it's, Mary knows this is Jesus. For I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I'm returning to my Father your Father, to my God, your God. I can remember meeting my father-in-law for the first time, and I fretted, what do I call him? Like, what, how do I, how do I, uh, like, address him? Like, his middle name is John, but that's by the, na the name he goes by, so do I call him Papa John? And Kim's like, only if you want to bring him pizza every time. I'm like, okay, I can't do that. And it's like, his first name's Frederick, and so she, I was like, can I call him Frederick? And she's like, only if you want to get punched. And so... So I went with the respected Mr. Taylor. That seemed like the, the way to go. But there came a point when I asked Mr. Tater, Taylor for his Mr. Tater, he's not, a he's not a potato, for his daughter's hand in marriage. And with much bribery and reluctance, he said yes. As long as I stay in Canada. And I was like, okay, I promise. I crossed my fingers and put them behind my back. <laughs> but I'm here in Canada. And so I got the okay. And then I go and I propose to Kim. And just like her father, with much bribery and reluctance, she says yes. 
But then I go to call John, Mr. Taylor. And he looks at me and he says, you can now call me dad. This passage gives us a moment like this. It's a moment when it becomes clear to the reader of the gospel that something extraordinary has taken place here. What happened to Jesus is extraordinary, right? He's risen from the dead. But something extraordinary happens to the world. To the world now. Something amazing to the way God and the disciples and the people have relationship. Up to this point, Jesus had spoken about God as the Father. Up to this point in Scripture, it's always been the Father. Or the Father sent me. Or simply my Father. It's either the Father, the Father sent me, my Father. And Jesus had only called his followers his disciples, his servants, his friends. But now we get my brothers. Go tell my brothers that my God your God, that my Father, your Father. Something is altered. Something has changed. A new relationship has sprung. Something beautiful has come. The disciples are now welcomed into a world where they can now know God the way Jesus knew God. Jesus says to Mary, your Father and your God is no longer my Father and my God. The separation from God has now been lifted. It is now over. Where now they can have intimate relationship with the Father, their Father. So what the resurrection did for us was when we were hurting, Jesus gave us hope. Mary is this picture of us, deeply wounded because of the death of Jesus and the death of her king. Maybe today you are hurting. You feel, maybe you feel the loss of a loved one. Maybe there's a broken relationship that you still feel the effects of. Maybe that broken relationship happened like five or six years ago, and you're still working through it. What we see is the resurrection gives us hope when we're hurting. When you are in a place of deep pain and anguish, you can look to Jesus. When you have lost a loved one, you can turn to Jesus. When you are hurting as you go through that broken relationship or friendship, you can turn to Jesus. When you feel the weight of the words, maybe that have been said about you and against you, and you feel like you are just in deep pain that you can't even get out of bed, you can turn to Jesus. He gives you hope. And what he does is brings hope in the midst of pain. When Mary was at the deepest pain that she's experiencing, the deepest hurt, there is Jesus, the resurrected king, and brings her much hope. And now we can have relationship with God through this one, Jesus. The next interaction we have is with the disciples. So we will continue on in John 23. And it says this. On the, on the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for the fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And he said this, he showed them his hands inside. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you don't forgive them, they are not forgiven. 
Now let's look at this again. First, the doors were locked, not because they knew Jesus was alive and they were seeing if he could walk through the walls. It wasn't that. But because, as it said, they were afraid of the Jews, right? If the Jews had killed Jesus, if they did that to Jesus, what will they do to us, the disciples, the ones who follow Jesus? So Jesus enters in the locked room and he says, run. No, just kidding. He says, peace be with you. It seems like the thing to say when someone appears in a locked room, but a hard thing to do if you're the one in the locked room. So he shows them his hands and they are overjoyed. This is Jesus. This, this is the risen one. And he calms them again, Jesus. And he says, peace be with you. The Father has sent me and now I'm sending you. He is now giving them a job. He is now giving the disciples a job. You see, Christ achieved... Nope, I don't have it. You see, Christ achieved something, and now something needs to be implemented. So Christ achieved it. I, can, I, I liken it to this. Jesus was like the composer. He had written the music. Now he needs an orchestra to implement it, to carry out his writings, to play the song of the gospel, to carry out what Jesus had already accomplished, an orchestra to play it out. But the great thing was is that they won't do it alone. Jesus breathes on them and says this, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, I think this is really cool. But we talk about redemption and how Christ came to redeem what happened in the fall. And we get a beautiful correlation of this redemption in this verse. This is amazing. And so we're going to go back into Genesis real quick. In Genesis 2-7, it says this, we see Jesus create Adam, and when he creates him out of the dust, it says this, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. God creates Adam through his breath. He creates him out of the dust, then breathes into his nostrils, which is weird. But he does it. He breathes it into his nostrils. And Adam became alive. Then we know the story, right? Adam, sinned, Adam and Eve sinned. And God no longer walks with them. We see after the fall the struggle, right, of a life separate from God, but with a promise. There's a promise. As we read throughout the Old Testament, a promise of one who will come make all right, make all things new, will make it all good again. Then after the resurrection of Jesus, we see him breathe on his disciples. This breath is a healing breath of God's Spirit, which came to undo the long effects of that rebellion. Now, in the new creation, the restoring life of God is breathed out through Jesus, making new people of the disciples, and through them, offering new life into the world. So here we see, in Genesis, God breathed into Adam. Then sin came in separated. And now, Jesus comes, is risen again, and now he breathes onto the disciples. New life no longer separate now. This is so cool. What, what, do, what do Adam and Eve do when they find out, you know, when, they, when they eat of the fruit? What do they, what do, they do? They, they realize they're naked, but they go and what? You can, you can yell it out. It's okay. There's, only, there's no wrong answers here, but there is. No, <laughs> they hide. They go and they hide. When Adam and Eve sinned, they hid amongst the trees. The disciples were hiding afraid of what could happen to them, and Adam and Eve were afraid too. When God found Adam and Eve, 
They said to him, we're naked. That's why we're hiding. And God knew sin had entered the world. And that peace, not just sin, but now that peace, that, that shalom, that peace, was no longer with them. And that blemish of sin would curse the world. But when Jesus found the disciples, he said what Adam and Eve hoped to hear. Peace be with you. And he breathed upon them a new life, a new promise. That death that came into the world in Genesis is now defeated. Adam and Eve were hiding. The disciples were hiding. Their sin came in. Peace was no longer there when Adam and Eve were found by God. When Jesus found the disciples, he said, peace be with you. Peace be with you. In the garden, peace left. But now with Jesus, peace has arrived. The peace I give you, he says, now gives you the power to carry out the message of forgiveness because now my spirit is with you. What the resurrection did for us was this. When we were scared, afraid, worried, he brought us peace. Maybe you feel like Adam and Eve today. Maybe you're caught deep in sin and you feel caught up in some hopeless situation and you feel like I'm stuck. Maybe you even feel like you're hiding. And you have nowhere to go. You feel scared. You, feel, you don't feel safe. Jesus wants to come and meet with you and bring you peace. He wants you to realize that is sin has been defeated, that you now have peace with him. For everyday lives, we are sometimes gripped by fear and worry. And that's not just like I'm saying to you. I'm saying it to me too. We have this fear sometimes and worry that overcomes us. Maybe taking the next step in your career frightens you, even though you know you should. Maybe speaking to someone about Jesus frightens you, even though you know you have something to say to them. Maybe you are scared about the upcoming election. Maybe you're frightened just to even get up out of bed. Or afraid to send your kids somewhere because of the fear of what might happen. Let Jesus pour his peace upon you today. Let him wrap his arms around you. And this isn't a flimsy, like, who cares what happens kind of peace. Like, yeah, peace, man, just let it be. Just let it hang. Just let it go. It's a power that comes upon you because of the resurrection power of Jesus. Who is the Prince of Peace? Who is the one? We no longer have to fear the thing we should fear the most, being separate from God. That's the thing we should fear the most. We have a relationship with him. We are no longer separate from him. As I was thinking about this, you realize that Jesus came to bring peace, right? What peace means is there is actually like affliction in, in the world and in life. Like there's actually things that happen. It doesn't mean it's all like gone. It means in the midst of this world, in the midst of what's going on, he has defeated it all and he can bring you comfort knowing that we are with the one who's defeated it. Now, our last interaction we see in this scripture is found in verses 24 to 29. And it says, there we go, sweet. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, which means twin, which it wouldn't be a sweet nickname if you're, if you're asking me, what's your name? Nickname, twin. One of the 12 was, he was one of the 12. He was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. 
Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger in here. See my hands? Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believing. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Thomas is one of the disciples. We're like, oh, didn't we just say that he was just taught, like, they would just talk to the disciples just before this? Thomas, for some reason, he wasn't there. Maybe he was making a Starbucks run or something like that. So we get Thomas. So when we see Thomas here, they told him that they've seen Jesus. The disciples are like, Thomas, we've seen Jesus. And he says, oh no. Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where, where the nails were and put my hands in the side, I will not believe. I will not believe that you've seen him. I cannot, will not. I feel for Thomas a little bit. He is remembered for doubting, right? When we talk about Thomas, we're like, oh yeah, Thomas, like, oh yeah, doubting Thomas. But other disciples, they don't get named for their faults, right? There's no petrified Peter or lusting Luke or James the judgmental. Nothing like that. But we get doubting Thomas. But the crazy thing is, as we read scripture, there's a lot of people who doubt. Jesus' cousin, for example, John the Baptist, whom Jesus called the greatest prophet ever to live, got confused because Jesus didn't seem to be bringing in the kingdom as quickly as he thought he should. And so G John sent this message to Jesus in Luke 7, 19. Hey, are you really not the Messiah? In other words, he doubted. It's like, hey, aren't you really the Messiah? Like, what's happening? Job, in the Old Testament, has a book named after him that is essentially 37 chapters of him confessing his doubts to God. The psalmist, right? We read the psalmist. He has his doubts. Then there is literally a book of lament. Lamentations. But one of my favorite, the Gospel of Matthew, tells us that after Jesus was resurrected and had appeared several times to the disciples, he gathered them all on the mountainside and began to ascend to heaven and Matthew 28, 17 says, And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Seriously. He is floating in the air. And some of the apostles are like, yeah, I don't know. I'm going to keep my religious affiliation as none for now. Like, seriously. <laughs> seriously. Some have doubted, but we have doubting Thomas. But this is not who Thomas is. A couple of observations, and I'll start to close here. Doubt can happen to anyone. No other gospel mentions Thomas as much as John. And when we hear of Thomas and John before this, he isn't like, he doesn't have those silly interactions like Peter did. Thomas had good faith, great faith. In John eleven sixteen, 16, we first hear Thomas, and this is when we find out Lazarus is dead. And then, and Thomas says this to Jesus, let us go that we may die with him. Why does he say this? Because the last time they were in Bethany, which was where Lazarus was, they threatened to kill Jesus. And Thomas is like, we gotta go. If they're gonna kill you, they're gonna kill me. Thomas says, if he's gonna die, let it, we're dying too. Then John 14, we get the famous, the way, the truth, and the life. And that's where Thomas asks, like, where are you going? And Jesus says, the way, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And Thomas seems okay with that. Yet we find him in this spot from a faith-filled Thomas 
one full of faith to a doubting Thomas. Why? When Jesus died, he really shattered every category Thomas had for what God was supposed to do. He was all in. I'm following this man. He is saying he's the Messiah. I'm in. In Thomas' day, the Jews were under cruel, right? In ro- cruel and unjust Roman persecution. So Thomas, like most Jews, expected the Messiah to come and crush the Romans. That's what he expected. Isn't that what a fair and compassionate God would do for the Jews? But Jesus had shown up preaching mercy to the Romans and telling the Jews to be kind to them, to turn the other cheek and love their enemies. And then he had died in weakness and shame, in the most shameful way, on a cross. Thomas, he literally had no category for this. A dying Messiah or a suffering God. No category for this. Thomas wanted to believe. I'm sure he did. But his mind had been blown away and his heart had been deeply broken. Doubt happens for many reasons. It can come on quickly. It can come on slowly over time. It can be a result of personal choices you made or relationships you have. The most common doubt is one that is forged through sorrow. And that is what we see here. Something sorrowful happens and we begin to doubt. Maybe your doubt has come through some, something sorrowful. Maybe your marriage is failing. Maybe there's a struggle for you to have kids. Maybe there's a financial downfall in your life. Maybe you've lost a loved one tragically. Maybe your kids aren't coming to the Lord as quickly as you'd like. Where has doubt come in and completely rocked your world? Thomas was devoted to Jesus, heard his preaching, teaching, saw the miracles, devoted his life to him, but he still doubted that he was alive. I mean, it happened to him. And it happens to us too, for honest. Sometimes I come in, like, when I don't feel like I'm progressing in my walk with Christ, I begin to doubt sometimes. But I know that he is the one that I love and I'm supposed to follow where I find peace, where I find my hope. Our second observation of Thomas is that we must be honest about our doubts. Verse 25, so the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. They're like, hey, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. And how many times have we said that? I'll believe it when I see it. An amazing interaction. All the disciples together, they were sad. They were, they were alone. But then Jesus appeared. Then Thomas come back, comes in, and, and he's, they're like, you shouldn't have missed small group, bro. Jesus came, and he spoke to us and commissioned us. <laughs> Thomas is like, he is not alive. No, he's not. You don't come back from the death that he just experienced. That's, that's impossible. You don't do that. The disciples couldn't let it go. They kept on telling Thomas, they kept on telling Thomas. The word told in the Greek means that they just kept on telling him. He's alive. He came back. It wasn't just one time and Thomas was like, no, no. They just kept saying, he's alive. He's alive. He's alive. Over and over again. Thomas voices his doubts. He's but like, like, he should believe him, right? Ten of his closest friends. He knew these guys, trusted these guys, but was honest about his doubts. He was honest. So are you honest about maybe some of the doubts you might have? It's easy for us to go through the motions of church. We come here on Sunday. We get songs that lift us up and fill us up emotionally. 
We hear the teaching, which is awesome. <laughs> People are awake. <laughs> Just kidding. But what if we were honest with somebody today? Right? What if we were honest with somebody today about the battles going on inside of us? What if we saw someone after service and they asked us, which, you know, this is the common saying, how are you doing? And you said, I need to tell you something. And you give someone a chance to speak into your situation, maybe to speak into your doubts. Have you ever had that when you were open with somebody about life and they still love you the same after you spoke to them? That's what Jesus is like. That's what the body of Christ should be like. We come to him and are like, Jesus, I need to tell you something. He replies, yeah, I already know. And it has been forgiven. And that's good news to our heart. The most liberating moments in life, if we can think about the most liberating moments in life, is when we put the pretending and performing aside. That's when we feel liberated. Be honest where you are in your doubt, but stay close to Christ. Draw close to him. You might doubt, but it doesn't change the promises of Christ. Right? Thomas doubted, but he didn't leave the group of disciples. Like He doubted and he was still with them for eight days. He stuck around. We need to stick around other believers if we have that doubt too. To press in. The last observation is this. Jesus wants to turn doubters into disciples. Thomas was sitting in his doubts for a week. Some of you may have been sitting in them longer than that. I hope this last section brings you encouragement. When Jesus says, peace be with you in verse 26 when he appears, this isn't the cordial, like, Jewish saying, right? Shalom. This isn't that. This isn't like, peace be with you. This isn't shalom. <clears throat> or in our days, it's not like, what, what's up? This peace be with you is the same phrase as what Jesus said in the upper room before he was about to die in John 14, 27. When he says, my peace I leave with you, my peace I give you, he is reminding them when he comes in that he has done what he said he was going to do. Give you peace. I leave you peace. I have left you peace. And now that peace was won on the cross. He's saying, remember I said I was going to bring you peace. Here it is. In the midst of turmoil, in the midst of doubts, Jesus always comes bringing peace. Always. Jesus looks at Thomas and invites him to get his doubts resolved. He doesn't chastise him. He doesn't say, why did you doubt Thomas? He addresses his doubts head on and doesn't dismiss them. Jesus' interaction with Thomas shows that the resurrected Jesus is full of love and graciousness and gentleness to his people. That didn't change. The whole conversation was a bit, a bit of a rebuke, a little bit, but so veiled with love that Thomas he just couldn't believe it. Then we get one of the most heartfelt confessions about the deity of Jesus comes from Peter, or comes from Thomas, and he says, my Lord and my God. So when we see Right with Mary, where he says, go tell him about your God. Thomas says, my Lord, my God. No one told Jesus what Thomas had said. Jesus wasn't listening on the other side of the wall with a cup on his ear and being like, oh, eight days later, I'm going to show Thomas. That he means Jesus knows the heart of Thomas. It means that this very moment, he knows your doubts as well. 
Are you wrestling through your doubts? He looks at you the same way he looks at Thomas, with love. He says, I hear you. I see you. I know that you are, what you're going through. I understand. But look at my hands. Look at my side. Look at my wounds. You might be saying, but Jesus, are all the promises in Scripture for me? And he says, look at my wounds. I died so that those promises would be for you. But Jesus, all this pain and all this hurt in the world, why aren't you doing anything? And he says, look at my wounds. I died so that I can make all things new, that I can breathe new life. But Jesus, I'm too far gone. I know I've done some terrible things. I've, I've messed up. Can I truly be accepted? And he says, look at my wounds. God loved you so much in the middle of your mess that he sent me for you. If we need assurance, we need to look at the wounds. We need to look at the cross. When we doubt, we look to this. Why? Because they tell a story of that he had us in mind when he went to the cross. Those wounds tell a story that he had us in mind. You've got questions, you've got concerns, Jesus did too. When he went to the cross and he cried out to my father, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, he was forsaken so we would not be. If he did that for us, why would he not be able to handle some of our doubts? I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. You see, what the resurrection did for us was when we doubt, Jesus showed us truth through his wounds. And I'm just going to call up the worship team. We're just going to close. You ever wonder why Jesus' body, like when we see pictures of it, it always like, it still shows like the wounds in his hands. It didn't, like, this, like this passage, right, we see that Jesus comes with the wounds bearing in his hands, right? If it was to make all things new, right, wouldn't it just be a new body? But no, we see the wounds. We hear about the wounds in this scripture as a reminder to us about his steadfast love and loyalty to us. Thomas would one day go and take wounds in his body for Jesus. It is said by church historians that he was speared to death in India. What would the church look like if we were honest? Like Thomas was honest. Some of you might be struggling with doubts, fear, sadness, you're hurting, and God is saying, yep, you know, I know. I know what you're going through today. I understand what you're, what you're feeling. But he's with you. He says, I want you to fight. I want you to surrender those things to me. Just lay them down at my feet, at the cross, and then rest. I'm going to pray. And after I pray, I, there's three groups that we talked about here. And there's three different things I just want to recognize. For some of you, maybe you're like Mary today. Maybe you're deeply hurting. Maybe there's something going on and deeply is giving you anguish. If that's you, and like when we're singing this last song, I just encourage you just, just to sing praises to him. Raise your hands. Maybe sing a little loudly than you do. Just sing praises with that in mind. Jesus, I thank you that you've taken the hurt and the pain away. I can come and bring it at your feet. Maybe you, some of you are like the disciples, scared, fearful. Maybe you're, you're a little gripped by what's happening in life and it just cripples you. I want to give you the space. You know, maybe you need to sit while this song's being played. Just let that comfort, that peace come upon you.
Let him just take those fears away. And then the third, maybe some of you are like, Thomas, you have your doubts, right? You're like, I've got questions. I invite you to come forward. Like, I would love to pray with you. Maybe you need to talk about those doubts. And I want to hear them. I'm not saying this is the only way it's going to happen. Oh, I need to stand up if I'm doing this, or I need to sit down if I'm doing that. I need to come up here if I need prayer because of my doubts. I'm not saying that, no. I want to create the space for you to interact with Christ like that. That's all. So as I pray, I invite you guys to go ahead and lead and for you to respond how you feel you should respond. That's all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and that you are resurrected and that your wounds show us that we have now new life with you. Yes, some of those things, those hurts, maybe those fears, maybe those doubts, they might arise again, but we can look to the cross and we can look to you knowing you've taken it all. That we can find peace, that we can find comfort, that we can find truth with you. And so, Father, I pray as we enter in, Lord, as people interact with you, Jesus, that they would go leaving this place knowing that, man, I've met with Christ. Those hurts, yeah, they're starting to subside. That fear, I cannot be gripped by that anymore. Those doubts, I might doubt, but I see the cross. I see the end of those wounds. They were.